First John chapter two, verse one. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, the one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected by this. We know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to himself walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so, Father, we come before you today, Lord, we ask that as we study this text, Lord, that you would help us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is one of those passages this whole week. The, 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 the deeper I get into 1 John, the, the, in some ways, I, I feel over my head. On the surface level, it's very simple. But then if you start thinking, which I think God wants us to do, we start wrestling with some, some issues and some, some tension. And, and, and John is so black and white, and yet we find ourselves sort of in the midst of these contrasting statements and i felt like my rubber band in my brain snapped this week wrestling through this stuff um uh, but i hope to to bring it in light in a practical simple sort of way for us that's a that's a big hope there but he begins with my little children and and from there we have to sort of pause sometimes we we get into this text and people will make it sound like this is a, a, a critical, harsh uh, statements that are coming from John. But we have to recognize him as the, the grandfather of the church, that there's this deep abiding love that he has for those who follow Christ. And, and he's coming before us today as a grandfather of the faith for us, you know, a great, 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 great. I don't know how many greats, but many greats for us coming to us. And he says, Dear children, beloved, there's there's an affection here as we go through chapter two, sort of laying out the the household rules for us. It's it's not uh, to to make us feel bad or or to condemn us for our actions. But but he's coming to them as as a grandfather. Let me help you. This is this is your instructions for as you go about your walk with Christ. There's caution here. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And that one sort of 
stops me in my tracks. Wait a minute. I'm writing that you may not sin. Is this possible? But <laughs> a bunch of sh- shaking their heads. Well, we have to back up. What are the things that he's written so far to us? As we, what have we covered in in the first? What is it? Ten verses of John. He opened up in the first three verses, testifying that he'd seen, he'd heard, he'd touched. He walked with Jesus. He investigated him. He was there in a way that he could testify uh, in his day of writing that he was a man who knew Jesus, could testify first person about him. And the thing that he wanted to testify, the thing he wanted to proclaim is the eternal life, that Jesus is the eternal God. And he proclaimed them him to us or to his readers so that they might experience this fellowship with the father, this koinonia, this, this oneness, this shared community that through Christ's, Christ's death on the cross, we could be moved from darkness into his lightness, which is what verse five says. That God is light. And as we investigate this light, light isn't just a light bulb shining, but that God is holy. He's righteous. He's without any sort of stain, not wrinkle, that's laundry, but he's perfect. We, apart from Christ, are in darkness. And he wants us to understand the holiness of God and and this, this reality of his of his lightness highlights our darkness and our need of a savior. One of the neatest ministries that I was involved with was as a seal instructor. When I first started as a seal instructor, my very first hell week that I was to work is there was a, a pre hell week service there was a new chaplain. I didn't know him and not all chaplains are created the same. And I'd asked him if I could participate in the pre-hell week service. And I went and I shared the gospel, kind of went out on a limb and just kind of laid it out there for them. And afterwards, the chaplain said, we need to talk. And I thought, oh, I'm in trouble. But it turns out he was a really dear brother that the Lord brought. He had a Calvary Chapel background. And, and he's like, man, we need to figure out how to follow up with these guys. And so we served together for three years, reaching these seal candidates for Christ. It was beautiful. And then I got out. And I wanted to maintain this foothold that I had in this very unreached demographic. And the next time I went back, it was with a new chaplain. And the new chaplain, as I started talking with him, I could tell right away that we were not the same theologically. He's like, I don't understand this whole sin thing. And it's just not really necessary. You're just, it just kind of depresses everybody. And, and there's no need for it. And, and in my talk with him, I'm like, this, this ministry is going to stop because this man doesn't understand the situation that we as humans are in. And therefore, there's no need for a savior. Jesus was just kind of like a rabbit's foot on his keychain of that it makes you, he makes you feel good if you play some music or you do some stuff. He didn't truly understand the helplessness. And that ministry ended because of the chaplain, because he didn't see the need to keep it going. And so from verses 6 through 10, John begins to, in light of the lightness of God, 
there were three negatives in verses 6, 8, and 10. And he says, if we say these three statements, these, these what uh, the people professed, or even John, if we say something but our life doesn't align with our proclamation, we essentially lie and we don't have fellowship and we don't have the truth within us. But then in verses 7 and 9, there's two very positive statements that says, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That as we walk with God, then our relationships with one another can be healthy, can be in this very intimate unity, this koinonia relationship through the blood of Christ, which present active indicative is constantly cleansing us. As we walk with him, we're being renewed. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's beautiful. But see, some have taken these verses, and I think as John's writing, he sees this. There's an interesting law that, that applies in just about every part of the world to certain select people that I've been fascinated with. Diplomatic immunity. Diplomatic immunity means that you are in another country, you have immunity from their laws, and you can get away with all kinds of stuff. Sometimes people get access to this. I've heard stories from my dad back in the late 50s when he was at the Naval Academy of young guys going out drinking, but they happened to be in a diplomat's car, crashed through a bunch of signs, and the cops couldn't touch them because they had diplomatic immunity in that vehicle. And he's like, oh, yeah, they thought it was great. It was just like crash through three fence. Cops pull up and say, all right, well, get out of here, guys. You know, we can't do any. We can't enforce the law on you. And see, some people have taken 1 John 1, 9 as sort of diplomatic immunity. Well, I'm, I, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to go out and go do whatever, and I'll just 1 John 1, 9 it in the morning. <laughs> I've heard people say that. And I'm not saying this to educate you to go down that road. Like, oh, I'm just going to go out and have a great time, partied up, do whatever I want. And in the morning, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to cleanse us. There's freedom to go crazy in our sin. And it's with this sort of this backdrop that he writes, my, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So that you understand how holy and righteous God is and that through Christ we have this this koinonia with him. And so our perspective changes and our desire to walk with him, to be like him. Certainly he's not promoting sinless perfection that the saint will achieve in his flesh this sinless state. Positionally, yes, we're justified through Christ alone. But he continues, and if anyone sins, and you will, I'm writing that you would sin less, that you would be moved closer to Christ. And if anyone sins or when you sin, we have an advocate, an attorney with the Father. In the Greek, when I was going through this this week, it stood out to me because that with could be translated another way. It literally means could facing face to face that if anyone sins we have this advocate who faces the father in this picture of Christ standing before the father he's in our corner 
We have an advocate facing the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The one who is, is without sin. Who paid the penalty for us. Stands in the courtroom before the Father. Revelation tells us that this picture that as, this, as Satan makes accusations against us. Christ stands before the Father facing him saying, but I paid for it. They believed upon me. It's this beautiful picture this, that he himself is the propitiation for our sins. That he has made atonement for our sins. So John's saying, I, I, I'm not writing this so that you can continue to, 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 to just go headlong into your sin. Like Paul writes in Romans 6. What do we continue to sin that grace may abound? If Jesus paid it all for us, don't we actually make him look better? If like we sin more, doesn't that increase his grace? <laughs> Paul says, may it never be. It's not true. And I love this. He, he's speaking. He's including himself with this. If we, if anyone, since we have an advocate and, and not only ours only. Not, not just the believers that he's writing to, but he makes this distinction. But also for those of the whole world. And I don't want to grind an axe or anything. But the text is, here is, this is just black and white to me. He's, he's speaking to believers. He says, Jesus isn't just our advocate that his sins made payment for our sins. But he says, but for the whole world, those that are in Christ also. That when he died on the cross, he took on the sin of all humanity. And it's this beautiful picture of who Christ is. That Christ is elevated on this cross. We could never fully understand what he's done. This whole picture of him standing before the Father. I don't know if any of you have you know, had any real world courtroom scenes. <laughs> where, where you were... The defendant, <clears throat> unfortunately, I have. I'll remember, I was 20 years old. I was charged with resisting evading arrest. I eventually had the charges dropped and expunged. But in the process, about a year later after the incident, this is all part of my story of coming to faith in Christ. I got news that my security clearance was in jeopardy and I had to go before I could appeal the decision of losing my clearance and go before a judge. And I took that option, and it was a six-month. I lost my security clearance for six months. My whole world kind of collapsed because you can't be a SEAL without being a, having a security clearance. And I'll never forget the scene of this attorney who came in on my behalf. He was the only one that was allowed to address the judge unless the judge wanted to speak directly with me. And I sat there and this attorney stood before the, the judge and explained everything. He pointed out stuff. You know, he, he said, well, nobody else can testify for you, but we can certainly bring in your commanding officer, your chief and everybody from the SEAL team and sit them in the stands. And I can say that they're saying something, even though they're not saying anything. And he, he, he makes his whole defense before this judge. And I sat there and everything was based upon him and, and and that this is the picture to know that for me and my sin, it's not, it's not my works or my own righteousness. 
When I stumble, the issue is that Christ is there saying, you know what? On the cross, I paid for that. I take, I'm taking responsibility for the payment that's due him. I'll pay the penalty. It's beautiful. Yesterday morning with the SWAT team, they did this dog and pony show, which means that they, they put on this, the civilians come in and they go through and, and they send them home after they gas them. It's a lot of fun. And I love participating as a chaplain with the SWAT team. It's, it's just, it's a privilege to me. But the reality is I, I realize that I'm a nobody with the SWAT team. And that every time they have training, they say, okay, who's here on overtime? And I always raise my hand up kind of joking. Yeah, so just, I'll get triple pay for my salary for my time here. You know, <laughs> you know so zero times zero, tripled it, you know, it's, or three times zero is... You know, and I always kind of joke with them. It's a, it's a privilege. But then yesterday in this dog and pony show, like the sergeant says, hey, Gunner, we want Gunner, to, our chaplain, to come up and introduce himself. And kind of he's a he's an intricate. He's like saying all this stuff like I'm an intricate part of the team and yada, yada, yada. And I got up there. And I'm like, hey, guys, I'm a nobody. Like I'm a pastor in Valley Center and I'm privileged to be able to come and serve and minister to these guys and 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 to help them in their unique strains. But. But really, it's about what they do, and, I, and I'm just here to serve. And when it comes to, to our relationship with God, we're all really nobodies. It, our righteous, we have none. It's about who you know when it comes to heaven. It's that Jesus paid it all. My righteousness is in him. And John's making this very clear. But suddenly this tension, this tension arises is that... Our, our, our lifestyle, how we live our lives matters. Verse 3 says, by this we know that we have come to know him. I, I want to stop here. It's so easy to read this and to miss what's said. So I want to highlight it for you. By this we know, so there's, there's a knowledge about something. So there's a way to sort of authenticate something. By this we know, John uses knowledge all throughout his book. So what we're authenticating, by this we know that we have come to know him. So there's a test here. How can we know that we have known him, Jesus? Stott has suggested that there are three tests found in the gospel, or the first John, not the gospel of John. There's a theological test for assurance. What have you done with Jesus? Who do you say he is? Have you come to believe in him as savior? The second test is the moral test. How do you live your lives? Are you obeying his commands? Then there's the third test he suggests, and I don't know that I buy into all of these, but it's kind of helped me to framework, is the social test. How do you treat one another? That these are sort of a litmus test to gauge your relationship with him. There's sort of a flow chart working in my head because I think I'm a little bit more linear than John. I, I'm way more comfortable working with the Apostle Paul who everything is very laid out, like just in order. Makes perfect sense for my German brain. I'd lo- you know, it just, it, it, now John's kind of, everything's sort of interlaced and, and tied into a, a ball and it's, I'm trying to follow him. So, so the first test is that we, we know him. At the end of John, 1 John 5, verse 11, 
which I'll come to at the very end. It says, and this is the the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So so the, the number one, the most important of all things is, do you have the son? That's where he left off his gospel of John in chapter 20, asking the question, do you believe? I've written these things that you may believe. Do you believe? And so how, how can we know that we know him, that we've come to believe in him, that we have this relationship with him? He goes on to say, if we keep his commandments. So are you walking with him? Are you taking what he said seriously? The one who says I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And so this sort of this second test as he, as he kind of goes through this unraveling. And the tension here is, is kind of our salvation is based on Christ alone. And, and in our culture today, it, it, that's where the church likes to, your life doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus paid it all. Yes, that's absolutely true. But in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're told that in Christ, we're new creations. And, and so if we're new creations, there should be some something evidence in your life that you're a new creation. Some of us, it looks different for different people. So, some of us, like for me, I wasn't raised in the church. And so... I feel like there was a big, like going to the new creation, there was a big sort of transformation. Now I'm talking with my wife who has the exact polarized that she was raised in the church. And so externally she looked and played the part like a Christian. But when she came to know Christ, it was a a more intrinsic sort of going from a two-dimensional relationship with God to a three-dimensional relationship with God, which was huge, but externally, it was a little bit harder to measure, if that makes sense. And he says, if you, you can know that you have come to know him if you keep his commandments. Certainly, he's not saying that you come to Christ by keeping his commandments. He, you, you can know that you know him by doing his works. For certainly there are plenty of people who keep all the commands and look very Christian, but they don't know him. And so the externals aren't necessarily the primary thing. But for the Christian, when you're not walking with the Lord and you're not keeping his commands, there's certainly a lack of assurance. I know that for, for me, when I had become a Christian... And I struggled for so many years walking in the darkness. I, I lived and operated in the darkness. And then when I became a Christian, I became light in him. But yet my old habits took a long, it was hard to kind of kill those old habits. But suddenly those old habits no longer satisfied. And they even brought like an emptiness. Like I, I remember with drinking, trying so hard after becoming a Christian, in the struggle, like I would crack a, a beer and I drink it, and I just kind of like, oh man, I, something just doesn't feel right anymore. Maybe I need to have another one. Take like I need to work harder to get that feeling. But but suddenly something inside of me was like different. And and the longer I sort of swam in the darkness, that assurance just wasn't there. 
And I think it's a beautiful thing that God gave us to, like, to us. When we stick our hand in a fire, there's pain there. And so we retract it. If the pain wasn't there, we wouldn't retract it. And there'd be all kinds of damage. And I feel like when I was in the darkness, I didn't have assurance. But I also lacked, oh man, that koinonia, that, that something that I can't explain that I had Sunday while worshiping God and studying his, his, the Bible, that, man, I, that closeness I felt to him. Well, Tuesday in the bar when I started cracking the beers, there was tension in that relationship and, and, and there was not assurance. And that lack of assurance kind of, to me, flow chart back to square one. Do I really have a relationship with the son? Lord, I'm doing all of this stuff in the darkness. I don't have assurance. Do I really know you? And I went through this big tug of war with God, like this wrestling match. No, I know you. I want to know you. I need help in this area. I need, I need help kind of figuring out how to manage life in the world now. So by this, we know that we have come to know him. So, so we can have assurance that we know him if we're walking with him, if we're keeping his commandments. The one that says, I have come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. There's a tension. I've heard it said by my father-in-law, so I want to get it straight. He, and he certainly was quoting somebody else. Is that your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Now you guys try it. <laughs> so both are true. Your, your talk says something. And your, your talk should be speaking truth. Should be speaking the fruit of the spirit. But we all have either, we've been there, but it's so much easier to see it in other people, amen, right, you know? But when you say something, but then your life and your behavior doesn't align with what you say, that speaks so much, that, that speaks volumes. I tend to think that, that that's more evidence, your life is more evidence of who you are than what you speak. And so he clearly is saying, listen, if you know him, if you're this new creation in Christ, there'll be evidence. But whoever keeps his word, verse 5. So if you keep his word, in him, the person who's keeping his word, the love of God has truly been perfected. it, It doesn't say that the one who keeps his word, that he's been perfected. Just, just as a little star, some like Wesley have were taught that that the individual becomes perfected. This isn't speaking of perfected. It says that whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. So as you walk with him, God's love brings perfection. Now, this word perfection is teleos. It's where we get the word telescope from. What does a telescope do? It takes something that's really far and it brings it close. Other places in the Bible, it speaks of of maturity. And so as you walk with him, God's love brings about maturity. What better picture in the New Testament is there than the Apostle John? I've beat the poor guy up in his early life. This guy who wanted to pray fire to come down on the Samaritans. This guy that had boldness. The guy who broke up people that were walking with Jesus but weren't a part of his group. 
suddenly at the end of his life, he's known as the apostle of love, that he was transformed, that, he, that God's love was matured in his life, that the fruit of the Spirit so manifested itself in him. It's this process. But whoever keeps his word, the love of God truly has been perfected or is matured. By this we know we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So if we're, this is like such a tangled web of stuff. By this we know, here's that word, that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to himself walk in the same manner as he walked. So he's saying that if you abide in him, that your life, the way you walk, your lifestyle, it should be in the same manner as he, that's Jesus. Have you guys seen those bracelets? I mean, they're not, they don't seem as trendy anymore, but what would Jesus do? I was sort of critical. I get any, any fads I get sort of critical of, I, I, you know, and I've been, you know, corrected by snoops. I guess the lemming thing isn't really true. But the thought of the lemmings that, that what we've come to know lemmings by is I think, oh, there goes everybody. The prayer of Jabez. Now they're selling toilet paper dispensers that say the prayer of Jabez on them. And everybody's swapping, like buying them all up. Then there's the, what would Jesus do? And I remember going, man, it, it's what would Jesus want us to do? Because I'm not Jesus. But then I read this and I'm like, hey, there's probably some credibility to this whole. Because like, it says, the one who says he abides in him ought to himself walk in the same manner. There's a passage uh, in back in the first page. I got to it in a different spot here, I think. Um, no, it's somewhere in my notes. It's really good. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So it's kind of saying like, hey, you could, you could have the great morals. You could be walking. But if you start surrounding yourself with people who aren't in the same like-mindedness as you, then they will bring you down. Well, the opposite is true. That if, if you are growing and learning and you surround yourself by people who are more mature, who have been walking with the Lord or the Lord himself, he'll begin to change you. And so John here says, as you walk with him, you'll begin to look like him. And if we go back to the previous chapter in 1 John 1, 7, it says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. Now, he's already told us that God is light. God is light. In him, there's no sin. Jesus came to earth, stepped out of heaven. He is God. He was totally or is totally light, yet in his humanity, 100% man. And as he lives his life on this earth, he's a perfect representation of what it means to walk in the light. The light. And so we're to follow after him. And as we follow after him and his example, then we begin to look like him. This probably is very simple, but my mind is all wrapped up around the axle trying to this this tension of we will we will not be perfect in this life's life. Yet in him, we have we're justified and God sees his righteousness in us, that his righteousness has been imputed to us. 
And then as we walk, as we become more like him, we do sin less. And there should be advances. But at the same time, we come to understand how light he is. And, you know, Dave Bishop, who some of us know, he has this little book that he gives out to all of his Marine guys. And, and he tells the story of a man who came to Christ, who he knew, who, who said he used to have big sins. But then as he came to know Jesus, he, he, he really, those big sins he had help with. But then suddenly now his small sins became big sins to him. And so this sort of happens to us, but we're, we're, we're becoming more like him in this process of sanctification going day by day. We become to look like he looked, that we walk in the same manner as he walked. And I think in verse 7, John kind of injects this to try to say, Gunner, stop, you're thinking too much. Let me give you like easy bites to swallow. And so he says, beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you. But an old commandment, which you had from the beginning, an old commandment, the old commandment is in the word which you've heard. So he starts saying, I'm not writing you a new commandment. There's this old commandment. I I like how he says, if you walk in his commandments and we go, oh man, there's so many things in the Bible. Where am I going to even, where do I even begin? John says, I'm going to tell you where to begin. This old commandment, I don't want to look at the new commandment until we look at the old commandment. And so if you have your Bibles, please hold your spot in 1 John. Go to Leviticus. It's the part where your Bible starts, the pages stick together. All of us who started the Bible reading in the year program, we do great in Genesis, Exodus. Then we hit Leviticus and we things sort of slow down in here. But this was like the, the, the moral code, the, the law for the children of Israel. And in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17, a law is given, a commandment that was critical for the people of Israel was given. And I believe that this is the old commandment. And there it's written, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen, your brothers in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. It says, you shall not hate your brother. Be very careful using the word hate. If you're around little kids and you hear them using that word hate, I would stop them. Because the Bible speaks very severely of this emotion. Do not hate your neighbor in your heart. You, you can reprove your brother. Your brother might be in sin and it's okay to correct them and to go to them in love. But don't incur sin because of him. Don't let hate fester in your heart. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. For I, or not for, I am the Lord. This, this great saying that almost everybody uses, I, religious, non-religious, love your, love your neighbor as yourself. They have no idea where it came from. God is God. He's the same God from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation. He's a God of love. He, he wants people to love one another. And he, and he says here in verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the old commandment. But back in 1 John, he said, this is, this is the old commandment that I'm writing you. It's not a new commandment. There's, there's, there's nothing new about this commandment. 
John was known at the end of his life, he could barely walk. They would walk, they would carry him to the front of the church. He's known as the apostle of love. He would say, little children, love one another, love one another. That was his sermon. Those few words to the very end of his life was to love one another. And so when he comes to this verse in verse 7 and 8, I'm not writing a new commandment. It's in Leviticus. Love one another. But then he goes on to say in verse 8, on the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and it new, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Okay, the, the old commandment, I'm still writing that there's nothing new there, but this new commandment I got from him. And if you're children of the light, if you've become followers of Christ, something changes. And it will turn back to John chapter 13, the gospel of John. Chapter 13 begins John's remembrance of the, the Last Supper with Jesus. He devotes so much effort to the Lord's Supper. And I believe that the Lord's Supper like permeates all of 1 John. He was transformed during this last 24 hours with Jesus. You remember how the story begins. They'd sat down for dinner or they were about to sit down for dinner and what does Jesus do? He washes all of their feet. This is something that was reserved for the lowest of the low of all of the, the slaves in the home. That They had sandals. It was dusty. When they sat at a table, it wasn't like us where we sat in chairs and there was a table in front of us and our feet were on the ground. They reclined at the table. It was The meal wasn't about just getting the food in you in the five minutes like I eat. It was this laying down so your feet would be close to the people next to you. And so your feet, they, your feet would have to be washed and cleansed for the meal. And Jesus gets down and he washes their feet and he basically says to them, this is the example that I'm setting that you love one another, that you serve one another. And in verse 34, he says, as this all sort of the story sort of unravels in the Lord's Supper, he says... A new commandment. Does this sound familiar? This is what John is referring to. He's thinking back to the Lord's Supper, his time with Jesus. And Jesus said to him, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Does that sound different? No, that's exactly the same as Leviticus. But then he says he changes the commandment. Even as I have loved you. So he flips it from love one another as you love yourselves, he raises the bar and says, you love one another as I have loved you. This is the night in which he was betrayed. He just washed Judas's feet. He would go to the cross and on the cross, the sins of the world would be placed upon him. This is great sacrificial love. This is a love that has the other person's interests in mind. And he says, this is how you're to love one another. He goes on to say, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, Jesus is impressing upon him the importance of loving one another. If we'll turn the page as they continue through the Lord's Supper in chapter 15, verse 9. 
He continues to expound on the importance of love. He's already told them the new commandment. Just as the Father has loved me, John 15, verse 9, I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, man, this is sounding familiar, isn't it? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Part of the problem when we come to 1 John, and you can go back there, and we see this setting of, I write these things so that you may not sin. You can know that you know him by keeping his commandments. What's your first reaction when you think of the commandments of God? Think, oh, man, these are a bunch of rules. Try to keep me down. They're no fun. Jesus says, if you abide in my love and you love one another and you keep my commandments, my joy will be in you and your joy will be made complete. That there's contentment there. I used to complain. I don't want to be a Christian because I like having fun. I didn't know how to have fun apart from Christ. I've had more fun in Christ than apart from him. And so John, when he comes back here and he starts speaking of commandments, maybe the one commandment to work on is loving God and loving each other. Well, that's two, technically. He goes on to say, where are we at? We're in verse 9, 1 John 2, verse 9. He speaks about the old command, the new command. The one who says he's in the light, back, referring back to 1 John chapter 5 or chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, God is light. So if we say that we're in the light, if we're walking with God, and yet he hates his brother, you're really in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Because the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Two weeks ago or three weeks ago, I was in Lake Tahoe and I spoke at this ministry retreat. And there was a guy, the worship leader, was wearing this t-shirt that was, I, I almost tried to buy it off of him. <clears throat> but he wouldn't, he wouldn't go for it. But it said across the front, they will know that we are Christians by our t-shirts. <laughs> you know? And, and it's sort of a play. I, 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 Francis Schaefer, I think he lived in the early 1900s. Right? I always, he's, he's not around anymore. And he wrote a little book, and it was about the badge of the Christian. And, and, and he reduced that the one thing that distinguishes Christians apart from any other thing is love. That this is what sets us apart. This is our love for these girls who are find themselves with unwanted pregnancies that are scared their family's not there. And then they walk into alternatives and they get this free medical care people to love on them, to pray for them, to help guide them. It's love that causes people to give to this. It's love that causes us to say, hey, we're going to go waste a Saturday. Not wasting it, but that's the world's view. We're going to paint this building. 
We're going to cover the cost of doing this because of our great love for these people that we want these children to be spared. Our, our love for one another sep- separates us from different things. When we were in Spain last fall, my Spanish has even come a long way in the last year. And while we were in Spain, Anna's like, I got, you're definitely understanding way more than I'm than I give you credit for. So I have to be careful talking to my mom because she kind of goes into Spanish when she's talking to her mom. So the kids and I, I guess, don't understand what she's saying. But with 60% comprehension, you can sure get lost in a lot of what's being said. And, and so we wanted to track down a, a lot of these ladies from the church. And so we found this lady and we went to her apartment and we were sitting with her and I was kind of keeping the kids together and I was listening and, and trying to understand what was being said. And I, I heard a lot of love. I heard Iglesia. I heard a lot about love and the church and, and uh, some other stuff. <laughs> like, so I'm like, oh, she's speaking about how loving the church is. This is wonderful. And we were there for probably an hour or an hour and a half. And then as soon as the lady shut the door on us, and the tears just started streaming down Anna's face. I'm going, are these tears of joy? And she's like, no, weren't you listening? I'm like, yeah, I heard a lot about the church and love. And she's like, no, the lady was saying that there's no more love in the church. That this new guy came in and it's legalism. It's about how do you dress? What, what translation do you, and he's just beating everybody up with legalism and the church is decimated. The love is gone is what she kept saying. And Anna's just like heartbroken. She's like, you know, 20 years between my dad and the last pastor of loving on these people, helping them understand Christ. And now it's just decimated. Love is one of these things that decimate, like getting it back in a church is hard to do. And it brings great joy. Like that our church, like I feel like there's love in this church. You know, there's an opportunity to provide a meal. And I'm sure, like, I kind of, like, I, I, I'm not going to speak for Dave, but I, we were in his shoes with the baby. And, you know, the first week, people, people signed up for a bunch. But after the first week went by, I kind of, like, hid the sign-up sheet. And I took it away because I'm like, okay, with enough already. We've got enough meals. Like, I can, I can put a frozen pizza in the oven and feed my family, you know? Like, I can, like, uh, like, like, uh, but it... But then people are like, hey, where's that sign-up sheet? And we were fed for like, uh, and it's just humbling when you feel that sort of love. There's just something about being, when love is in the air and people are loving on one another, that is radically different than anything else in the world. When we were going through all of like our prenatal appointments, and looking at the wall, you, you know, like there's always these sign-up things at the hospital or wherever we went, the birth center. And there were like sign-ups where, hey, you can spend $350 and we'll provide meals for you every day. And there were all of these things. I'm like, it must be a lonely place outside of this, like the fellowship of a church, uh, this sort of family. And John so much wanted to protect the love, saying, if you say that you hate your brother... You're not in the light. You're in darkness. Because love is the earmark of the church. Be careful with using that word hate. If you have children, I would not let them use it. 
You can say you hate sin, but outside of that, you might just dislike McDonald's burger over In-N-Out burger. Like, it's not hate. Hate is a strong word. And as I look in this, this section, this, how do you know that you have eternal life? The, the, the first question, the flow chart is, what have you done with Jesus? The, the, the more I go through the scripture, your, your sins condemn you for sure. But Jesus paid for the sins of the world. What did you do with Jesus? Do you know him? Have you believed in him? John tells us in chapter 5 that he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. This is the most important question. What have you done with Christ? And if you answer, yes, I have the son, I have life. Are you walking with him? Are you following his commands? Are you walking in the darkness? Thankfully, we, we yes, we have an advocate with the father. Go to him. Confess your sins. He'll cleanse you. As we walk in the light, he purifies us. And if there was one homework assignment this week, it's to love one another. Maybe you haven't told your spouse three simple words. I love you. These are important words. Have you told your kids? I love you. Your your friends. I love you. I'm thankful for you. Love is a powerful thing. And I would encourage you this week to be intentional. Think, I, I don't have the answer for you. I, I'm struggling for, just for myself. <laughs> and God's going to lead me a different way. But, but pray, Lord, how can I demonstrate your love this week practically within my household, within my workplace, with wherever you go? Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day, Lord. I thank you that we can have assurance of our relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us, each one, Lord. Lord, that we would know that we have this koinonia with you. And Lord, if we are in a place in our life, Lord, where we're struggling, where we don't feel close with you, where we're not walking with you, Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to get back to a place where we would humble ourselves before you, that we would confess our sin. Lord, we confess that walking in the darkness, Lord, is is so easy to do. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, just to align our lives, our hearts, our minds with you, Father. May we become more like you. Father, help us to love one another. If we have bitterness, anger, resentment towards people, I pray, Lord, that you would just heal us of that. Father, help us to experience your love. May we abide in your love. And Father, as we walk with you, we pray that you would make our joy full. We're thankful, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.